You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your fearless leader, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined, as all, mostly always, by uh, sexy average Sean and Rick, who is no, nobody's in the closet uh, this week. But we're also joined, in addition, by Max Dennis of Million Games, and who actually will be a future Ultra Pro associate product manager here in a little bit. Welcome to the show, Max. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Max, you're a bit of a, a seasoned listener. I think you've uh, probably listened to the majority of our shows have you you're probably sick of hearing our voices at this stage no i'm like waiting every monday just to listen i uh i started listening right when i started to get really serious about marketing for my campaign and it was like i couldn't get enough of it and then there was some i would skip over only to realize later on that oh no that's the one i need to listen to and i would <laughs> listen to that too so i'm there's only a couple I haven't listened to because they're like about books and stuff. And I'm, I'm like, I'm here for the board games. Books are but, Oh, that was one of my favorite episodes. Jeez. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll listen to it then. All right. <laughs> I think the best, uh, the best one I enjoyed was the uh, mid campaign slump one. And I think you did too about the mm-hmm. things you could do to actively uh, try to drive people to your campaign after the initial push is over. Cause man, you start going crazy in the middle when yeah. all of a sudden your big numbers kind of fade away and you're like, what am I doing wrong? And you, you're trying to figure out what you can do. So I, I really like those ones. It's it's yeah. the valley of death. Oh, <laughs> you jump like off that. the cliff and then you got to yeah. climb. At the last week, week you climb back out of the uh, valley up, up, up the uh, cliff again. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I, I've, I feel, you know, in, in life, sometimes you go through these really high highs where you're on the top of the world and something goes really well and you're so excited. And then six hours later, you just descend into the deepest valley where you know there are rous everywhere and it's like the fire swamp and um that's pretty much what it's like after you know the first 48 hours of kickstarter everything goes fast and then all of a sudden it just grinds to a halt for most cam or it really you know comparatively i'm assuming it's more exaggerated on a kickstarter as opposed to other platforms because kickstarter's got a pretty wide uh, user base um, do we have, I don't know if we've, I know we've done some, some, uh, other platforms like GameFound and whatnot. Do we have any, uh, like concrete, uh, like, uh, stats on those numbers yet at all? Or? Yeah, it's, it's similar because we've done Skyrim and we've done, uh, Robomon with Gabriel. So it's, it's similar. You have the first two days and the, the last two days. So the key is to have a four day campaign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then take a break in the middle, um, <laughs> It's interesting because it, it's, I, I think those, that episode or series of episodes that we've done on the mid campaign slump are so valuable. I, I could probably, and I expect that we will probably talk multiple times about that exact situation and just hear different perspectives from, from folks that have gone through that. It's a really tough place to be. And I think that even for experienced creators, you know, there are certain bits of advice that will translate. I'm sure everybody will say, try to get on as many podcasts as you can, or try to get on, you know, try to get video interviews on YouTube or get reviewers to share your stuff. But there are so many other things that you can do. And then also, how do you get on podcasts? Where do you go? And there are just a million different podcasts that make a big difference. So ours ours is just a tiny little one. (laughs) We're just months away from our second year anniversary. Wow. Mm-hmm. I know. Crazy. How did that come up? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's pretty awesome. We're closing in on episode 100, I think. This is episode 95 or 94 or something like that. So, Max, you, you've been a you've been a big crowdfunding nerds listener. Um, was that before, during, or after your, your Kickstarter experience? Uh, it was right before. I, I used a manufacturer uh, at Hero Time Manufacturing in in Hong Kong and he really liked you guys. And he told me he would give me a discount on my samples if I used you, because (laughs) if I did that, it ensured that I would get funded and that he would get the order for the copies. And I was like, Oh, "Oh, that's amazing. I'm going to call her international. International. We're uh, we're pitching this. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. Okay. And then, um, I think I started talking with Sean and he sent me a couple of links just to get familiar with the whole crowdfunding process. And after I listened to those, I just, I was, I was on a plane flight. So I had like a lot of time 
and I was at a layover actually. So I was bored and I just started listening and listening. And then I was like, actually, this is really good information. So I just kept oh, listening. That's excellent. Sure. So that's cool. Cause we, we, uh, Hirsch actually, we're going to have him on the uh, podcast in a couple of weeks. So it's a, that's a, that's a nice oh, cool. follow up there. Yeah. You know, it was actually a very, um, very interesting that you mentioned that because when I talked with Hirsch, this was uh, a couple of years ago, he said that it's very frustrating to give manufacturing quote out and, you know, for a, for a great product and then have that product not fund, then he, he doesn't get a manufacturing job. And he noticed that our clients that or clients that were coming to us always funded or, you know, almost always funded. And that means, you know, a higher conversion rate for him. I actually had never heard of him getting or giving people discounts for on samples for using us. But I think that that's a really cool thing. Have to have to bring that up when we bring him on the podcast. Yeah, it's it's because he's trying to get money for his time, right? Because if he's just going to make four sample or five samples of a game, and you have to set everything, it takes so long, and the odds of it not funding are pretty high. So then, you know, if he charges a reasonable price, it's kind of a waste of time because he's not going to yeah. get that return on investment. But if he knows it's going to fund, then he can do it for cheaper because it's going to pay out in the long run. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So, and you know, it's interesting because even the most successful Chinese manufacturers, oftentimes printing a thousand units of something is a win for a lot of these manufacturers. Um, you get a lot of people requesting a minimum run of 500 units. You have now the larger manufacturers are requiring a minimum order of a thousand or even 1500 units. Maybe for bigger projects, they can go lower than that, but you really don't get any benefit of, of economies of scale until you ascend into like a thousand units or more, you know, it's just, they can be so expensive per unit, um, when it's at low numbers. And that's just because the labor is so high that at, at that point that, you know, it's kind of a bummer. What you really want is you really want your machines running all the time, you know, and that's, that's kind of the goal as a manufacturer. So, so our podcast, we wanted to talk to you about how to market a game, but uh, that is similar to but not the same as a very well-known ip you had uh saria the dinosaur park survival game which is um you know i don't want to get you sued into oblivion but i think that that sounds a lot like a um another dinosaur park series that i have watched every single episode of and i'm trying to get my little children to watch but first don't yeah, the first few movies are actually because it's horrifying for kids because we did the you know we did your emails. So I uh, want to refresh myself on that series because I hadn't you know seen it in a while. Jurassic and Park. It was it was far it was far more terrifying than I ever had realized. It's a bunch of, a bunch of kids being brutalized by dinosaurs. <laughs> like I'm, I'm not showing this to my kids. They're gonna be they're gonna have nightmares. So yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, they kept the they kept the gore pretty safe. In that movie, the first one. I still remember it's a lot, the lot of jump scares. Like, yeah, it's not like a Halloween movie or anything. That, that movie <laughs> came out when I was born, and uh, my mom took me to see the second one in the theater when I was three years old. And as soon as the first, it's like Stegosauruses, and they're kind of aggressive, but you know it's a Stegosaurus. Yeah. I was just crying my eyes out, like I could not handle it. So she had to, <laughs> she had to leave, and then I, I saw it like four or five years later. I'm like, I'm gonna watch it again, and then I really yeah. loved it. That's awesome. Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting because actually a lot of movies that I look back on really fondly, like for example, Pirates of the Caribbean, is is another one that comes right to mind. They're actually kind of horror movies. Um, if you, they're if such young kids. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I have five daughters, and and then a, my son's one year old right now. So bunch of <clears throat> girls that are very into princesses and very cutesy things, and then I show them Pirates of the Caribbean because. You know, I love that movie, and then they're all no, scared, no, no. closing their eyes. And if you want scary, growing up, Gremlins. I grew up to Gremlins. That movie that was, scary as a kid. You know, they yeah. get that cute little fuzz furball thing, and it then it turns into yeah, and then it turns into a nightmare, and then it's like, dang, creepy stuff. Yeah, I mean, as far as Jurassic Park, there there were a lot of things that were quite similar. So you took advantage of. You know, font, for example, so Soria, the, the actual font of the logo and the, the Velociraptor and the T-Rex and even their interpretation of how those, those dinosaurs looked. And I would love to 
kind of just to have an understanding of the how this idea came to came to be and how you decided it was going to be similar and, and different from Jurassic Park. I actually got the idea for it the first time I played Nemesis. I was playing with my friends on Tabletop Simulator. This is like right when COVID started to freak everybody out. So nobody was going to anybody's house. And uh, I was in Oregon at the time. We just moved there, which was like the worst time to move there because we had no friends anyway on top of COVID. So we were just playing on Tabletop Simulator. And my friend's like, oh, it's, this game's like Alien, but better. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. So I played it, and I really liked it. There were some things I really wanted to change about it. I'm, I'm always that way. Like when I buy a video game, I, I just mod it over and over and over again until I have it the way I want. And I'm kind of the same with board games. I'm like, play Skyrim? Yeah, and I, I used to. And I used to mod it like crazy. Yeah. Um, and board games too. I'm always like come up with house rules because I'm like, that's I don't like how that works. I want to change that. So with Nemesis, I loved the feel of it, but there was a bunch of things I was like, ah, I just don't like how that worked or like I'll die on like the second turn. And I'm like, that shouldn't be there because now I'm bored. I'm going to be sitting here for an hour. So not, not to trash on that game. I really like Nemesis, but it was just basically alien, the board game, but done right. Because there's a bunch of other alien games that aren't that great. And Nemesis is pretty great. So I was like, man, I'm going to try to make like a dinosaur version of this just for fun. I, I wasn't even thinking about Kickstarting or anything. I just thought it would be really cool to have like one I, my wife and my friends could play. And it would be a little bit a little bit easier and a little less harsh on the players and more dinosaur themed. It was basically, I was like, man, if they can do Alien, I can do Jurassic Park, right? Like, but not. <laughs> that's kind of where it went. And it just I just kept going with it. First, it was just a tabletop simulator thing and we'd play it like on the I'd, I'd hook up an hdmi cable to my laptop to the tv and we played on the tv and then i was using stock images you know just pngs off google like t-rex png and hunter guy png like <laughs> none of it was my art and my wife's like this is really fun you should like actually try to make it and i was really weary i was like i don't know that, that doesn't sound like a good idea but i found an artist who was pretty reasonable. Uh, her name is Nadia Potapov, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And she was like 16 at the time. I found her on Fiverr. I didn't even know she was 16, but when I found that, I was like, you are amazing for how old you are. Um, and she was doing dinosaurs for like 50 or $60, which is a really reasonable price. And I was like, look, I can make all the dinosaurs for like, I think it was under $400. And my wife was like, all right, go for it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so once I did that, I was like, oh, well, I've already spent like $400 on some art, I should probably keep going. So then I, I just, I kept doing it until the point I was like, man, I've spent like over a thousand dollars. I should probably just try to make my money back on this and, and fund it. If I'm going to do that, I should really go like a hundred percent and just keep going. So I had to navigate a lot with, uh, not stepping on that IP's toes. Not that I think I would cause I'm so small, but just in case. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually really curious about that because like what was one example or one or two examples of something that you decided not to make it that way, even though you think maybe I could get away with this? What was what was a little too close for, for your comfort? The closest was the font, like you mentioned. And I originally was going to use a completely different font, one that was just kind of unique and pretty use and not, not going to get me in trouble. I had hired a graphic designer and he was like, well, why not just use African font? And I'm like, I looked it up and I'm like, oh, that's Jurassic Park font. And he's like, no, 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 that's African font. It's different. Or like Tribeca <laughs> is different. And I was like, what? So then I looked it up and then I saw Dinosaur Island. I'm like, that's the same font. And they're, they're not, that, that is Jurassic Park the game also, but a totally different perspective. Yeah. And I was like, oh. For most of the dinosaurs don't break out. Right. And it's not, you're a guy on an island with dinosaurs. You're like managing a park. So it's a little different, but they totally got away with that because it's not the same font if you compare the two jurassic parks is really stretched out and kind of taller and a little creepier looking african font is actually the same font they use for the uh, wild animal park in san diego mm -hmm. so it's it's a commonly used font but it still gets the idea across so i was really afraid to do that at first until i did some research and realized that it's like a there's that one snl skit with papyrus for avatar mm -hmm. have you seen that he's like it's papyrus like it's not papyrus. It's just really close. Yeah. <laughs> so, so instead of stealing the font from Jurassic Park, you stole it from my previous work employer. Thanks. That's really good. 
just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> even uh, even Tom Vassell, they were they were talking about like the upcoming Kickstarters, and I looked at mine, and they were like, oh, they like stole the font from Dinosaur Island, and I'm like, no, Dinosaur <laughs> Island took this font that was very similar to Jurassic Park, and I also did that. <laughs> yeah, I I legitimately think originality is concealing the source. The only original things that exist in this world. You think they're original, but somebody else did it. It's just you don't know about that other thing. If you made your own type font, then it makes sense. But most, like you said, most corporations, companies, they gotta do, they gotta get something out quick. They're not gonna be like, we're gonna make our own type font. Um, they, they'll just take a standard type font that they think looks good, and they may modify it a little bit, and then they off out the door goes. Um, yeah. So uh, <laughs> yeah, but there's a lot of type fonts yeah. out there. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a really interesting and interesting thing that that you point out. And so when you designed the game. As you know, one one of the ways that I like to design games, I think about the feel that I want my players to have. But you know, was Jurassic Park your primary inspiration for that? And how did you like? What did you want your like? What experience did you want your players to have? Yeah, it was definitely my main inspiration for that. And the reason I really wanted to hone in on that was because there's a lot of Jurassic Park games and a lot of games that are like Jurassic Park but they don't ever make you feel like you're the people in Jurassic Park. Like that's always like a management sim or something like that, where you're, you're like kind of top down view managing this park. But from what I could tell, there weren't any games that were like, you're in a dinosaur Island park and you are a guest or a, a staff member and there are dinosaurs loose. Go solve the problems, not die. Uh, there is Jurassic Park danger, but that's like a super simple game. Uh, more for like families and kids there wasn't anything that was like you know you can like get weapons and you had like all these different actions you could do and like you had to strategize it was just like i move i escape so yeah. i wanted something that really made it so you felt like there was a lot of choice and a lot of different ways you could go about things is like almost like a video game where it's just like they drop you in and okay go what i'm, what I'm hearing is that you did a lot of research and development so you, you understand all these different games in this genre and you made sure that your game stood out. So that's it's very interesting that you know you were able to speak just off the cuff of the different Jurassic Park games and how's your how how yours is different. I, I really did do a lot of research on this to make sure that I wasn't just stepping on another game and everyone was going to go, oh, well, that's just that game. But <laughs> so I wanted yeah, to make sure it was original. But I I really like how you managed to kind of infuse the theme into the game and and that sort of thing. And now. You know, because we're a marketing podcast, how did you get other people to kind of buy into that, you know, this, this, because you made $50,000 on this project. It wasn't like, you know, your goal was 20K. Um, you made much more than that. And I am, you know, one of the things as a marketer that I have kind of the hardest time with is convincing people that this thing really is the thing that they want. You know, everybody does want a really great Jurassic Park game that, that feels like you're you know, watching the movie, you know, you know, all those same feelings, but how do you convince people that you're not just kind of blowing hot air? You know what I mean? Yeah. I put a lot of references and time into, into making this game really feel like the movies or at least call back the memories of those movies. Like I have like, I have an encounter system where if you step on a certain hex you'll flip it over and it'll have a symbol and it's like oh shoot there's an encounter that's going to happen and you draw the card and it'll say like ripples in the water and it, it'll give you like a little narrative text like this you know you're walking along and you feel the ground shake and you're like what and you look over the puddle and you see a little ripple and it's like boom a t-rex is on this space now here are your three choices what are you gonna do and i i have a lot of those that kind of harken back to the movies don't and, run into the porta potty. Right. <laughs> don't, don't go to the bathroom. But uh, there's there's a lot of those. Hey, I, feel like, <laughs> I feel like people they saw how much I I clearly love that IP and really wanted to just create that experience. And people would ask, "Oh, is there? You should have a card like this." I'm like, "I already do." And they're like, "Oh, that's so <laughs> cool." And uh, I use David Diaz too for my video, and uh, he really went all out on, on making it just look so cool. And I also had another artist just draw out some, some cool backgrounds and stuff to give off that vibe of, you know, dinosaur Island and chaos. And 
it wasn't just like a silly cheesy map with a bunch of dinosaur pngs and like you have pistol go fight dinosaur like it i really put a lot of theme into it and i think that helps people be comfortable and be like oh yeah this guy really cares about the, the ip and wants it to be cool because yeah, you That's also awesome. have there's different objections right in terms of escaping there's different areas you can escape and then you have this big mechanic where there's a volcano that kind of comes on the scene as well so it's like i imagine it could become quite chaotic and quite exciting as the game progresses especially to like the end game yeah we were originally going to call it dino chaos island but that didn't sound very serious but it's just so it is extremely chaotic and each character has like a, a list of goals they need to complete and there's three different cards for each character so everyone knows roughly like the hunter is going to be hunting dinosaurs and the saboteur is going to be sabotaging things but they don't know which goal card they got and those could be very different as to what their objectives are so you can't really tell until it's kind of too late to do anything about it or get in their way yeah there's a lot of different ways to survive the island and a lot of different ways to score points so it does create a lot of chaos and i haven't had really a game that felt like the game before it's always pretty wild and usually up to the last turn have you ever played chaos island it was a rts of jurassic park from 97 i had it as a kid <laughs> but, uh... yes i have i remember that game very much and i can still hear some of the characters repeating the same voice lines over and over again when you move <laughs> um, yeah cool? that was like one of my first computer games the uh a question i had for you you know because you mentioned that you you know you have people asking you did you include this particular trope in the game and you got to say yes i did here's the card where did you communicate with people how did you find them did you bring them into a community and talk with them how did how did you have these interactions with backers or potential backers uh instagram was where i started and i got a pretty big jump of followers right away and people that were just excited about the concept um, and once you get into like the little world of board gamers on, on, I think any social media, all of a sudden you realize that there's just tons of people that are into this hobby and you're not just like some guy off in the corner. Like there's a lot of people who are really into this stuff. So that was one place. And then it was really during Kickstarter though, that so many people, I guess, saw it and got so excited about it and were, I was commenting, responding to comments constantly and everyone had all these questions. Oh, is there a card like this? Oh, cause I showed, you know, a, a portion of my, my content, but not all of it. Um, and another thing I did was I had a stretch goal where you could, uh, we would make more of those encounter cards. And I was ask everyone like, you know, what are some cool, uh, situations that we could be in? And everyone was like, Oh, you should have it where you're like on a boat and a Spinosaurus comes out of the water and you got to do something. And I'm like, oh, wow, okay. I see where you're pulling that from. Let me think of a way to make that into a card. So I got people pretty excited that way. And a lot of those people were like regular backers. And then they get so excited, they go up to like the deluxe version of the game because they just liked it so much. That's really cool. I love that. It's uh, probably uh, one of the better illustrations I've heard of kind of involving your backers in the process. And I went to KickTrack. I checked out your you know, kind of the trajectory and the trajectory of the game itself. If you look at like the, all the funding progress, it has a pretty solid, uh, looks like you funded like on the second day or, or so. And, you know, so like within 48 hours, but, um, the, uh, what, what's very interesting if you go to daily data and you look at, um, I guess we can, we can include this in the show notes so that people can look, but, uh, you can see backers per day. But then you look at comments per day and there are way more comments than, you know, than daily backers, like on, on the regular, which is a really good thing. You know, you have on day one, of course, you've got a ton of people that back the game. Day two, you've got a ton of people that back the game. But like your highest comment days are on like day four and day nine or something. Just have a ton of people commenting. And I think that um, that's really cool. In fact, it's one of Kickstarter's metrics that they use to for placement um how many people are commenting and you know how many people are actually interacting and you know very interestingly your campaign seems to have quite a lot of engagement when you look at the um at the comments like that um so good job good job on that front thanks 
Yeah, a, a lot of people just got really excited and just had a lot of questions and were just like, yes, finally. I've been waiting for this kind of a game. And I'm like, oh, cool. So it was, uh, I can't take all the credit for it. Like, honestly, the backers were, were so excited. And I, I think that just really helped out. Yeah. And, you know, I think that capitalizing on that excitement is really important. You know, some of you had mentioned one of your favorite podcasts that we had gone over in, in the past on, on crowdfunding nerds was the mid campaign slump and how to handle, you know, stuff during the mid campaign slump and what to do and how to actually influence the number of backers and in, in a positive way and just things you can do that actually move the needle. And I think that one of the most important things is interacting with your backers, making sure that you answer the questions in a timely manner and, you know, engage back and forth, ask questions and so on. Uh, when people are interested, I think that one of the mistakes that I see sometimes is when people will, um, you know, be all excited in the lead up to their campaign and then they hit the go button and they allow all their backers to kind of fall asleep. You know, you're even the most excited backers are going to be, you know, yay, I backed the game. I went all in on day one. I'm just going to check it out in like 25 days, you know, when it's, <laughs> you know, that 48 hour mark or whatever, I'll look and see how many stretch goals we knock down and that sort of thing. When in actuality, what you really need is you really need those people to, to help you get the word out and tell others and just engage, you know? And so I think that it's so important. Can't, can't overstate the value of talking to your backers and just getting them involved in the process. And sometimes like people will teach you how to involve them. Like they want to talk about the events. I mean, that was that something that you expected or is that something that you learned when people had a question about one thing or another and it just always seemed to be talking about events? I mean, was that? You know, I, I didn't think it would be as popular as it was. And as soon as I realized it was popular and that people were asking about it and they'd be playing it on Tabletop Simulator and be like, oh, I love this encounter. Like, oh, this encounter is so cool. I realized I should probably lean into that and be like, hey, we could do some more. And they're like, give me your ideas. And uh, and then when they saw that I had taken their idea and turned it into a card, in the back of my mind, I'm like, all right, that guy is, he's never dropping off. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and anyone who saw that is going to be like, whoa, this guy listens. I have an idea. So I, I feel like that, that really helped is understanding what people really liked about it. Because the encounter thing was cool. I liked it. But that wasn't my favorite part of the game but it seemed to be other people's. Now you mentioned uh, tabletop simulator. How far in advance did you start using tabletop simulator and what kind of impact do you think it played on your Kickstarter campaign? I, I mean, I had the tabletop simulator version before I even had a real version. Um, that, that's how I play tested it. I didn't want to order anything until I knew it was at least somewhat fun, but I, I lagged a little on finalizing everything. I got so excited with making the physical version that I, I didn't, have the full tabletop simulator until like a weekend and as soon as i put it up i got like 500 subscribers on the mod oh, wow. meaning that everybody was waiting <laughs> to get in there and i was like oh wow i probably should have had that ready to go i kind of i mean that was another thing we wanted to talk about right was things i i regret doing <laughs> and that was yeah. one of them was i wish i had tabletop simulator and i wish i had it scripted i just recently paid to have it scripted which it wasn't that much money i think it was like 140 dollars and now setup is like five seconds and it makes it way easier and i, I yep. wish i'd had that because it looks better yeah it's true i a little bit of scripting goes a long way and uh it's kind of hard to find people like that how did you find that access or or, or i mean how did you find that skill set or did you like you know just do it yourself are we going into the part where I talk about regrets? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's do that. Okay. <laughs> On Fiverr. And I used Fiverr and Upwork to find a lot of my uh, you know, outside help. And oh. I had very mixed results with that. I had a very, the very good uh, dinosaur artist, Nadia. She did fantastic. I found her on Fiverr. And my illustrator for my characters was also on Fiverr. Very affordable. He always worked with me. But then like the first time I made my box art, I dropped $400, which at the time I felt was like a substantial amount. And then later on realized that wasn't enough at all. And I got a lower quality item and I was like, okay, well now that money is trash and I need to do it all over again, but expensive. 
and I found a uh, video animator on Fiverr, and he made the video for $500, and I thought that was a good deal, and then realized that I was way underspending, and that I, I, I got a pretty sad video. I mean, it, it was... You got what you paid for, have, so... Yeah, exactly, yeah. I just didn't realize how much stuff costed at the time, hmm. and I would post in Reddit on, like, the... Uh, the design board game design subreddit and be like, how much should I expect to pay? And I, the answers were just wildly different. And it's like, no one knew exactly. So I just, I sat down with my wife and I'm like, you know, I'm sorry. Like I'm blowing money right now and it's not really coming to fruition. I think I just need to go hundred percent, like just find the person that looks like they are the best and be like, how much? All right, cool. <laughs> And I'm hoping I'll get a return on that investment. Uh, you guys just talked about this, like when to spend $10,000 on a <laughs> video. And, I, and a lot of it, I'm like, yeah, like there's definitely a limit to how much you should be spending on ad spend and how much you should be spending on just the cool factor of your game. Because if it doesn't look cool, people aren't going to think you believe in it. Hmm. Yeah, Fiverr yeah. Fiver and Upstart are really good examples of of uh hit or miss because <laughs> you're, you're you're not working with a company you're working with individuals and everyone does their own thing um i use those quite a bit myself uh and a couple tips um you know you always want to see you know how many sales they've done what's their reviews also um like some of the like for example fiverr has different levels depending on how much work they've done in the response and they also showcase fiverr uh artists who also work for large corporations. Um, what I always like to look for is ones where like, um, there's actually a little a little uh, award uh, trophy that comes up on some of the ones where it says, people keep coming back to this person. Um, that's those are the ones that usually catch my eye. And then when you get that far, you always, I always like to ask for samples. Um, a lot of times on, on they, they have some, you know, pictures or video on their page, but it may not be what you're looking for. So I always ask if they had like a, a sample from a previous client I could look at or, or you know where what sources they're using and things like that. Um, but yeah, five five and five and upstart are are, are good um, if you have a lower budget. However, you know you can like one one person could be phenomenal and the next person be like, oh, I can't believe I wasted all that money. So uh, yeah, those are uh, really good examples of of, of that. Yeah, I think yeah. that Fiverr tends to be a double-edged sword. Sometimes the mentality is you know everybody wants to save money when especially as a first time creator, you want to find ways to pinch pennies so that you can invest in the correct areas. We recently interviewed Ori Kagan, uh, who's a very well accomplished videographer has made a lot of videos for very successful Kickstarter campaigns. And we, one of the things we talked about was when should you spend $10,000 on a Kickstarter video? It's like one of our re most recent, uh, um, podcasts and he, you know, we, we got into detail, but the idea is that, yeah, you know, you may not have $10,000 to spend on a Kickstarter video, but you have to have enough, you have to spend enough to just get the right quality product. And if you cut corners on something that really is very essential, people are going to see, and that might be the thing that turns them off. You know, my mom would always say, if you don't have enough money to spend to do it right the first time, then you better have enough money to spend to do it twice. But the one thing that was very worthwhile that I spent money on, on Fiverr, was a voice artist. The voice artist, you know, I did the script, they they gave me the, the components, I gave that to the videographer, and it was fantastic. Um, I had the same thing. I, I got my voiceover guy on Fiverr and it was really affordable and man, he did such a good job. Um, he, I found like this down under guy, his name is Guy, and he does down under voice. And I was like, yeah, that's like the hunter in my game. He's like a, a rugged Australian guy. So that's perfect. And he, he nailed it. Cool. Cool. So yeah. Max, you know, Story was you know, a successful campaign and it's allowed you to think of an expansion. So you want to talk about how that, that has come about and uh, what your plans and goals are for this board game, for this IP you've created? Yeah, I had other ideas for Soria, but I, I was also trying to avoid the mistake, which I still did, of making a game that was too big for my first project. Like, I definitely wish I had started smaller. And I had to trim a bunch of stuff out that I wanted to do. But I thought, hey, if, if I do fund and people are interested, then 
I should I should try to make an expansion and put those things in. And I asked people, that was one of my little questions on Backerkit was, would you get the expansion for this? And like a third of the people said yes, and a third of the people said maybe, and a third of the people said no. So I'm like, okay, that's like at least 200 people that'll probably get it optimistically probably, but that's a good like starting position, I think, to have pe people who are like, yeah, we would totally get it. So then I, I got to work like immediately after the campaign because I already had all the templates for like all my cards. I had all the artwork. I just needed a few new things. And I'd already started working on those things during my campaign because as soon as it funded, I'm like, all right, we're, we're going to do this other stuff too then. Um, so like now it's kind of like the Jurassic World to the Jurassic Park. Like we got a big, crazy hybrid and you got like uh, the ACU, the the... the asset containment unit that's like a, a new part of the game where like players have like basically dudes with guns who are with them to like keep them safe and fight off uh bigger dinosaurs and uh things like that so i i wanted that but it just was so much to try to explain in one game and i was like ah i gotta cut this stuff out but now people will have the game they'll understand how it works and enough people will have been able to vet it that i think it'll be like oh well these are some welcome additions not just a really huge game and you're really capitalizing on your first investments aren't you because you're building on what you've already laid down as a foundation and then you also now have a community so you have a group of play testers so there's all this added benefits of keeping within the same ip in the same world and building your next kickstarter your next project off something that you've done in the past so i think it's a it's a smart move and i think that's that's a good for our listeners, that's a good idea that if you have this grandiose idea, cut it down to the bare bones. And then if the project is successful, well, you can always come back with an expansion where you can add those extra elements in that you wanted in the original game. Yeah, that's that's actually the way Catan started. Uh, the original Catan had Cities and Knights as part of the base. And they actually, uh, Klaus Tuber pulled it out. And then, um, you know, just all those mechanics became the Cities and Knights expansion. And so... Very, uh, very interesting. I think that the value of just a very simple, straightforward presentation is, um, you know, it helps people understand clearly the type of product they're getting and the type of experience they should have. And that helps people. I think one of the most important, actually, you know, as, as we're on this topic, one of the most important things for selling on Kickstarter in particular or GameFound or whatever crowdfunding platform you're using is, Somebody needs to ask themselves, they, they look over at their board game shelf, which mine is to my left, um, and they ask themselves, do I have something like this on my shelf right now? And does this, or maybe another version of the same question, does this deserve a place on my shelf? Um, we I talked to somebody, one of our clients uh, yesterday in a meeting, and they have like 30 board games. And anytime they buy a new one, they make it a point to get rid of an old one so they are going to sell the old one or whatever and so the new one they have a limited space and they're going to um you know they have to justify why should i buy this new thing over the you know what i currently have um and i think that just clearly understanding the experience that they're going to get is of great value so max you know when this campaign was finished what kind of opportunities and doors opened for you that you couldn't even imagine, you know, what happened after the campaign? So, yeah, there were uh, a lot of things that really opened up to me as far as making more games. Uh, but what was pretty crazy was I actually applied for a, I applied for a bunch of board game jobs after that, just because my current job wasn't really paying the bills well enough. And I was like, this is obviously something I want to do. Maybe I could use my, game as kind of like a resume to get a job with the publisher. So I applied at a few places. Um, and then one of those places was Upper Deck, which is a publisher out in Carlsbad, California. And I just, I just applied and I changed my whole resume to, to just basically explain everything I had to do in the Kickstarter, all, all the different people I had to talk to and the way I had to organize things and even the fulfillment side of things, because there's just a lot of different hats you got to put on. And even when you hand some of those hats off to someone else, there's still a lot of hats. Yeah. So I just explained all of that that I did and explained the success of my Kickstarter. They called me back like two weeks or two months later and uh, asked me to come in for an interview, which I 
I was pretty blown away by it because I had been trying smaller companies with like seven or eight people that were like, we're looking for a new content creator or something. And I'd be like, ah, sure, I'll try. And this is a much bigger uh, company. So I went in and it was so cool. They have like this big Iron Man statue like in their lobby and they have like a xenomorph from Alien like under their stairs, like it just like looks like it's like stalking you. <laughs> and uh, everyone's super nice there. And uh, the interview was so cool because I'm used to questions like name a time, like you had to overcome adversity or like, what's your <laughs> biggest strengths? But they were like, what's your favorite board game and why? I was like, oh, this is <laughs> kind of, that's the questions wow. I want to hear on a, in an interview. And um, he was like, what are some obstacles you faced during your Kickstarter? And how did you overcome them? Like, what do you prefer, the design aspect early on or like when you're creating a board game or when you get the finished version of your game? What was a better feeling for you when you realized it was fun or when you had it finished? And I said had it finished because it was the coolest thing getting my first like final sample of my game and popping it open and punching out all the, you know, cardboard mm -hmm. and it's mine. I thought that was so cool. So a couple of weeks later, they uh, had another interview with me, which I thought was so funny because the guy I originally emailed or interviewed with, he was like in his mid forties maybe. And he had like kind of clean cut. And then his boss was this like super cool San Diego surfer guy. <laughs> it seemed like he had like long hair and he was wearing just a regular t-shirt and he had like the coolest questions for me and i was like this is the guy i'm going to be working on it that's so cool so it was it was a really cool experience and i ended up actually getting the job so i'm moving in a week which by the time this podcast airs i'll already be there and be working for them so it was just it's really exciting so i actually like andrew always says like don't quit your nine to five like when you start doing a kickstarter job and i'm like now it is my nine to five so that's pretty cool <laughs> that's, that's awesome. fantastic that's really cool to hear but let's let's be honest. Like the number one question they asked is, "Do you listen to the Crowdfunding Nerds podcast?" And you said, "Yes." Like, yeah. Hired. I I did name drop and said I use you guys for marketing. So okay. Oh, snap. I don't know if he's yeah. gonna look or anything, but it's in the back of his mind. He's heard that name before. Now. But I think That's it's it's cool. interesting because a lot of people they maybe just they they're so focused on their their board game or their their Kickstarter Kickstarter project. But there's a lot of other opportunities that can open up once you've got a successful campaign. And I think that was very wise what you did. If you're, hey, I enjoy working in the board game industry. Maybe there's a job for me out there in the board game industry. Let me, you know, let me do up a, a CV and throw it out there and see what happens. So I think that might give a lot of people ideas that maybe they find that there's something in this, this particular process of going to Kickstarter that they were really able to narrow in on and say, well, I really enjoy this one aspect of this industry. I'm going to focus on that. So that's a really, that's a really neat story. And yeah, Super excited to see what you get up to there. I, I think we should also talk about the, uh, the 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 negative aspects, though. At the same time, for example, you have to move down to San Diego. We're really expensive down here. You just <laughs> um, have a but, typhoon and a heat wave or something. <laughs> we're, we're just ending our heat wave today, I believe. But um, how how does this new job affect your Kickstarter? Game? Because obviously they're not going to want me to be working on other games aside because I need to be focused on. You know, with, with any way to do, I have to sign a uh, non-compete. So even though I already have literally probably 95% of my expansion done and I already have a time slotted in when I was going to do it, uh, I'm going to have to not uh, launch it myself. I'm actually going to have to step away from Million Games, which is like funny enough named after me because my name is Maximilian. Um, but I'm, I'm handing the company off to my brother who's going to take it over because um, this is like, a slow fastball down the middle like it's such an easy hit uh it's already done um but yeah i'll have to step away and i won't be able to make anything new either um they're gonna let me finish fulfillment for soria which i thought was very nice of them but they, they understood that right now i have games in warehouses that are like getting all set to mail to people and then someone's going to be like you know i'm missing a token or my thing is scratched and i need to be the one to <laughs> fix that problem so they're still letting me do that, but I'm going to have to step down from uh, Million Games officially. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, not a bad thing. You know, maybe you can talk to them about publishing Soria. I wish. I, I, I'm definitely going to wait for the right opportunity and try. Day one. My name's Matt. You've published my game. <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I would love to be like, hey, you know, I have this game that totally could be a Jurassic Park game. You want to try to get that IP for Jurassic Park? Yeah. 
the last game they put out, I guess, got a lot of flack. So maybe they're looking for a different publisher. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I think there's a company yeah. that can acquire that IP. Upper Deck is oh. that company. Br- bring it to a, a, I don't know, a staff party or something or lunch. Just yeah, open, yeah, just, yeah. Just, just hide it somewhere and like, oh, what's yeah, this? <laughs> stick it under my desk. Be like, oh, I just brought this in randomly today. I noticed you were playing a board game. Would you like to play this? <laughs> my monitor wasn't high enough. I had to bring something in. To... <laughs> you want to play this? Yeah, no, that would be a dream, honestly. Uh, and I, I've told a few people this will be like my official I'll probably have told somebody before this goes live. I'll, I will have told my audience, but um, I had mentioned it to a few people on our Discord, and they're like, "Well, you should just try to get it licensed with Jurassic Park and make it again." And I was like, "Yeah, I wish that'd be awesome. Like, if that ever happened, I would. I don't know. I wouldn't have anything else to ask for. That'd be so cool." It's possible. I mean, you know, there are a lot of a uh, lot of companies with intellectual property look for a game that they can reskin to. You know, and just in essence have like a really short, quick turnkey. You know, yeah, exactly. Mm. Just a, a quick port to their IP. Um, I've, you know, we've had experiences in the past where people that I, you know, contacts of mine that have gone to Kickstarter have can- have actually canceled their Kickstarter campaigns because they got an offer they couldn't refuse from a company that said we want to retheme this into X IP, but we need you to cancel your Kickstarter so that we can like purchase the rights or so that you can retheme it with us. And um, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's kind of nice when a company is like, Hey, you're going to make, you know, seven to or so percent instead of whatever you'd make on Kickstarter, but we're going to purchase 15,000 units. Um, And you never know who listens to this podcast. Maybe someone's listening right now. He's like, Hmm, ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I mean, a very common thing. I think that uh, something that I, as a, you know, kind of with my publisher hat on, I, I have the hat on whenever I look at a, a new Kickstarter, I'm like, is this something that could, you know, be in my line, you know, any, any time a Kickstarter kind of floats past my, or a client floats past our, our desk. Um, so something that I, you know, just, you can't help but think all along those lines. And there are people that, you know, that's their, that's their job. They look for, you know, games that could potentially uh, be a great fit. We had um, one of our clients, they were really insistent that they, that we work with them. I remember it was called fashion 101. They um, really wanted us to work for them. And so we did, and we just felt like, Hey, you know, this game really doesn't have the legs that it needs to go to Kickstarter. They pitched to Ravensburger and Ravensburger, which is, you know, a very large company. They're game found investors. They have a ton of, huge games they have the disney ip they're publishing lorcana among other things and ravensburger um took their game and they're now in you know like the fifth round of talks or something and they're getting gucci and prada and all of these other companies to buy in so that they can actually license the game i don't really know where it's at in in that process but because ravensburger is looking at it they're looking at it specifically because they can actually you know, use kind of the the game as a a system or maybe like a delivery device of all of this, you know, this well-known intellectual property stuff. Uh, I think they'll make a lot of sales that way. So anyway, it's kind of- You a- had me at Lorcana. Uh, <laughs> I was just yeah. looking recently on eBay and the, the, the cards that were given out at the D23 in Anaheim this year, they're going for about, for the set, they're going for about $3,000 right now. Wow. Just for yeah, and that's cards. not surprising to me. People were saying, "Oh, that's going to go for like five hundred bucks." Just the Mickey Mouse. I'm like, give it a year, and it'll be ten thousand dollars for that one card. We'll see. Just... He's going. He's going for about three fifty right now. But the the set, the complete set, and some of them are some people have autographed ones. It's going on average about three thousand dollars for wow. what they gave out during D twenty three. I did want to talk a little about the first thing we were talking about with uh, the IP thing because yeah, there's other examples of things that people got away with that I was like. That is highway murder, like highway robbery, or I don't know, murder. Uh, to, to to some of the things they did, I was like, wow, okay, I can get away with pretty much anything then, anything I was thinking of doing, because that is way worse than what I did. Yeah, so th- that's actually a really interesting point. You know, a lot of the time, board game, board games as a as a product, they're not playing at the same level as like a movie or something like that. They're we're not talking. 
typically in, in many cases, we're not talking millions and millions of dollars earned by board games. So you might not be worthwhile for a company like universal studios to go after because you're not, you know, you don't really make enough, but what, uh, can, are you, can you give an example? Yeah, I have a few examples. I wrote them, I wrote them down. Um, so I'm pretty sure this was Dinogenics, which is basically a different take on Dinosaur Island. Um, but it's it's the same concept, right? Jurassic Park Park Manager. Um, and they have a card that has like a guy in a black like leather trench coat and dark hair. And his name is E.N. Malcolm or oh. Ian Malcolm. And I'm like, wow, like you really tread the line there, my friend, like E.N. Malcolm. But it's yeah. a different name. It's not his, like, that is how kind of down to the wire you can get where you're just like, I wouldn't do that. That sounds too scary for me. But they're game published and they're doing just fine. Another one is a Prehistoric Kingdom is a video game. And it's basically making your own Jurassic Park. And in their updates and stuff, they'll put, like, must go faster to, like, talk about, like, dinosaur locomotion. And I'm like, that's just, that's a quote straight from the movie. <laughs> but, <laughs> but. They're fine with that. And then the last one I had was just Dinosaur World. Like your uh, your park entrance is just the park gate from Jurassic Park. Like, But it's made of slightly different materials and it's just a little different. But it's still got flames and a big wooden gate and all that. Yeah. So it's like really on the nose, but they're doing just fine. <laughs> yeah, that's it's pretty interesting because I – so I think there there are a few things that are – well, I'll put it this way. They're worthwhile enough for a company to send a cease and desist letter. Um, in some cases, this like they'll they'll never slap you with a lawsuit and say, hey, you know, you're you're now sued for millions of dollars. Um, but what they'll do is they'll send a cease and desist letter and they'll say, stop doing that. The things that happen that cause that right away are the likeness of an actor. So if you make a game that's a lot like Predator, but it's called something else and you use uh, the likeness of Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, they're going to, they're going to notice, or, you know, you make a movie like Rocky, but you're using Sylvester Stallone's likeness. Like that's the thing that will get you um, most often. If it's similar enough, a lot of those times, a lot of the times the actors themselves have the rights to their own likenesses, but also the various companies that represent them that defend the usage of their likeness, they are much more likely to, uh, to, to take action. I think it's Will Smith. He's got like a 3d render of, of himself so that animators can use his likeness in films. So like moving forward, there's going to have all these like digital films with Will Smith. So they're never going to age. He's going to be in films forever. <laughs> Amazing. You know, uh, James Earl Jones just signed his voice over as Darth Vader to Disney. Yeah. So Darth Vader's voice will be such uh, forever. One of the games I've been playing lately on my, on my Nintendo switch is Temtem and Temtem is like a Pokemon knockoff, but it's an MMO game because Pokemon hasn't done it yet. It's literally plays exactly like Pokemon. The mechanics are the same. They've just changed everything. Instead of Pokeballs, you have cards. You know, instead of the, the registered Pokemon, you have they made their own. But you cannot copyright mechanics. So um, that's how they got away with it. Um, but literally, we were playing it. You're like, this is Pokemon. But it's not because everyone, the characters are all drawn differently and there's different monsters, you know, so, uh, but it plays, you know, you have to go and get those badges from your leaders. You still have to go through the fields to get your, your, your Temtem. It's exactly the same. It's just, you know, they, they, they changed enough to, uh, to make it so that they wouldn't get in trouble. Yep. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's very interesting. Um, the other thing, uh, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, uh, you can't copyright mechanics. You can copyright the rules of your game so if it was like a rule book you can't copy a paragraph out of someone else's rule book that'll they'll get you um uh, the other thing is in regard to intellectual property if you make a deceiving statement about an endorse you know um making it seem like there's an endorsement for your product from a particular influencer like you know even if it's like a movie character you know, that's something that you have to be really careful about. And then the other thing that will get you in hot water, the patent. If somebody has a patent for something, that 
is something that needs to be defended. So a registered trademark is, you know, like for example, we have a registered trademark for the for deliver the deliverance logo and uh, the deliverance game, of course. So the the logo itself, someone else might use it, but my registered trademark only has value if I defend the trademark. So it's very important, according to the U.S. Patent and and Trademark Office, that I would send an email saying, "Hey, you can't use that. That's mine." Or you that I would do something to defend as soon as I found out about it, uh, because if not, then I can lose my registered trademark. So I'm. Um, uh, so that's that's a really big thing. One the actually funny that I'm using this example, but you know Crocs, right? Like the the shoes that everybody has. There was somebody who made a pair of gloves out of Crocs. They made Croc gloves with like, they were like fingerless gloves. It was just hilarious. Something on Reddit. And we'll have to include it in the show notes too. I'll find it. The Crocs company sent them a cease and desist saying, in essence, you cannot make this to sell it. And if you do, you'll be in big trouble. Why? It's because that's their patent, the material, the, the, the holes in the way that they are and whatnot. All of that is patented. and they are kind of responsible for defending the patent. So those are the main things that can get you into hot water. Now, there are companies that will try to threaten you. Uh, this is weird, but I don't know if you had this happen at all, Max, but um, did you have anybody contact you that, that where they said, hey, you, you know, you're doing this and you need to stop and it was just like a regular backer or something? Yeah. <laughs> so talk I, about that. I want you to uh, talk about that. I, I had a few people who were like, like, you're going to get sued. You need to stop. And like, this is. And, and I'm personally like, going to email the company. To make <laughs> people sure with the hashtag universal or like at universal to like get their attention at like an ad. And the first time I saw it, I was like, oh man, am I? Am I? And then I like really looked into it and I'm like, no, I, I already knew I wasn't. But somehow someone just says things so factually spooked me for a second. But no, but they definitely threatened me and were like, wow, you're just knocking off Jurassic Park. And I'm like, yeah. And like a bunch of other really popular games are doing that also. And a bunch of different IPs are also getting good knockoffs. But I think the thing is, if it's a good improvement, then everyone's okay with it. But if it's like a knockoff of something that's good and it's not very good, then everyone gets really upset. But as long as you're improving, I don't really think anybody gets upset or anything. They're happy that better versions out there now yeah some people might even be thankful because they're they're wanting that ip to create that thing i really wish i really wish there was a game that was like this and then someone says well i'll do it and then they make it and everyone says, yay about time and they don't really care that it doesn't have the exact same ip but because it's a similar theme and in the similar type world then they're thankful that that now exists as a thing it's better than nothing right yeah and you know what's funny is there's that one guy that i call it the mall cop of kickstarter have you ever seen paul blart mall cop you guys know what I'm talking about? It's I'm like, it, yeah. yeah, somebody, you know, Paul Blart, you know, he steps back like he's about to draw his gun, but he has nothing. He's just like left hip forward kind of thing. And uh, he just in the movie, it's just makes fun of him really not having any power, but trying to exercise authority over like a seven year old kid, you know, to get him to do what he wants or like <laughs> a, a 90 year old guy in an automatic wheelchair, you know, and uh who's just like not listening to him. So there are Kickstarter backers that will back your product and then say, if you don't change this one thing, I will go on a one man or one woman crusade against you to make sure that your campaign is canceled because of the one thing that you need to fix. And it's so dumb, but it, it actually can be kind of scary. And this is something that weirdly enough happens regularly enough that we actually uh, deal, we deal with it. I want to say one out of every five campaigns has somebody like this, where they'll, you know, they'll point something out and say, this is not okay. And you need to change it. And if you don't, there will be consequences that I will personally deliver. And it reminds me in, like of Dwight, of Dwight Schrute <laughs> from the office, where he's like, you know, you are allowed four demerits before you get a whatever. And then eventually it's like, well, then what happens? It's like, I will personally write a letter addressed to Michael and you know, whatever. It's just kind of a stupid uh, progression, but 
the idea is that it, it for for uh, for a Kickstarter creator, you you don't want to you don't mean certainly don't mean to cross any lines, and there are people out there that will um, scare you because I, mean, I don't I mean there are a lot of reasons that people might do something like this for attention or whatever uh, to feel important I don't know other times people are really misguided and they think that you're doing something wrong and they they're gonna let you know about it and they're gonna try to fix it they're not correct and. How do you deal with those people? You have to ignore them. You have to ignore them. You have to ignore the threats. You have to ignore their, their craziness. And I consider that trolling. And your job is not to feed the trolls. Because just like we talked about with gremlins, if you feed them water, they grow in power and get super evil. Uh, so just don't feed the trolls. I thought you were supposed midnight. to feed them and then put, a, put your results on Reddit. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> am, am I the a hole? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Um, but but you know, business, a lot of businesses do the same thing. Um, for example, let's let's pull out the big uh, the big one I don't like, Facebook. Look at all the thing features features quote features that Facebook has that literally is a copy off of someone else. Like, oh look, mm -hmm. Facebook Marketplace. Where'd that come from? Oh, now they have shorts. Why, why, where the shorts come from? I mean, like literally they just take the things they like from other apps or sources Absolutely. and then make it their own to get, to get the audience to stay on their platform. You know, like you said, nothing's really new. It's all the same. Everyone's stopping someone somehow. Um, but yeah, patents, patents are big. Um, you always, that, and the one thing about patents that really sucks is a lot of times someone will make something on their own and not realize they violated a patent. Um, cause it's like, there's only one way to make this and I did it, but someone beat them 10 years ago to it and made a patent on it and now they're getting sued. Um, so those are really hard. You know, that's why we see like Apple, Apple suing, I don't know, Google and Google suing Microsoft and Microsoft suing. And, you know, it just goes like in a big circle cause they all have patents on their stuff and, you know, someone yeah. makes something and all of a sudden it's like, ah, that's my patent. Um, you know, you know so. really what, what I think scares people the most is the attorney's fees that they fear they will accumulate defending a frivolous lawsuit. Um, coming from California, I can say that uh, that was a that was a fear of mine. But in actuality, 99.99999% of the time, there's just no chance of that happening. And it's, you know, tr truthfully, um, a lot of the time when somebody is doing something like this, they have something to sell you. They want to they want you to buy something of theirs. So there are people that use Kickstarter that are total Kickstarter scammers that will say you're missing this one thing, this one certification, and you're going to get in big trouble if you don't pay me a thousand dollars to get that certification. That's um, like the, the, uh, the ads. I don't know if you guys see these ads, especially for people who have their own websites, you get these ads saying, Oh, your site's not ADA compliant and you need to go to our site and we'll tell you exactly what's wrong. The thing is, is, you know, 88, there is an ADA compliance, to, uh, compliance, but there's no standard for it. For, for websites, at least. Um, so, I mean, there's business. Like, if you have a physical business property, you have they, they're written. I mean, there's things like you have to have a, a wheelchair ramp, and it has to be only so many degrees of, of height and whatnot and, you know, width and everything. But when it comes to websites, they do say – all they say is websites need to be accessible. I mean, that's like a little bit like – Okay, accessible how? You know, to what? What? I mean, there's no like you have to specifically have this or this, and but there's sites out there that like, oh, you need, to, you know, you're gonna get sued because your site's not accessible, because uh, we we know something that you don't know. You need to, you know, sign up and pay for our service, and then we'll tell you what's wrong. And I always look at those. I'm like, oh my goodness. I mean, because there's no, you know, they don't. Yes, your site needs to be accessible to a certain degree, and you have to make sure, like, you pretty much have to show if, if you do get sued for accessibility you, you pretty much just have to show that you you didn't do it maliciously or you know but yeah so there's these companies out there and you're just like i mean it's not regulated like there's no set laws or sets you know set instructions on how to make a site accessible and yet they're these companies are give us money and we'll make your site make sure it's accessible so max is there anything else that you wanted to share before we split anything that you want to like i i know i think i mean you have a future Kickstarter, your company's got a future Kickstarter coming up that you'll be handing off to your brother. You want to share where people can find information about that if they're interested? My brother will be launching in uh, February 2023. So it's a little ways off, but we're getting everything ramped up and I'm I'm getting everything that I can get done right now, but then I'm handing it off to him and he's going to finish. He's going to be managing our Instagram, uh, which is Soria underscore game. And, uh, 
we have a Facebook group, um, Soria Survivors. Most of everything he's going to be posting is probably going to be on one of those two places. Um, or you can visit uh, our website, milliongames.com, and join our mailing list. But uh, you can definitely look out for us. I keep saying us. Definitely just my brother um, in February. <laughs> and uh, cool. it's going to have a lot of cool new things, and it's going to be taking a game that's already really chaotic and making it even more chaotic. Yeah. And that's all the time we have for this week's episode of crowdfunding nerds, a big shout out and thank you to Maximilian Dennis home of, well, previous owner of million games at milliongames.com, M I L L I A N games.com. Check it out, especially his latest uh, crowdfunding uh, Kickstarter. Uh, Soria, uh, your dinosaur park survival game. And if you have any questions for us or any questions about, you know, crowdfunding in general, check out our Facebook group. We're called crowdfunding nerds community. Just do a search on Facebook for that. We got hundreds of people on there that will help you out, answer your questions. That's a really great community. Uh, we also do little community events all the time and we have questions we bring up and, and polls and whatnot as well. And if you'd like to listen to some more episodes of our crowdfunding nerds podcast, visit us, visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. And until then, stay sexy and stay nerds.